Hello, Dr. Marshall. We're going to do a quick mic check. Can you hear me okay? Yes, I hear you. All right, great. Same here. So let's get started. Welcome to Advocacy Arena, the place we bring awareness and solution-oriented focus to issues. Today, I am here interviewing Dr. Mary Marshall, and um, Dr. Marshall is a historian, African-American and women's history, genealogy, researcher, writer, lover of music, art, and photography. She is also the curator and custodian of the Mary Marshall Collection at Emory University. So good afternoon, Dr. Marshall. Thank you for joining me here today. I um, want to give you an opportunity to just say hello, and um, we'll get right started with our questions. Well, good afternoon, Dee. It is wonderful to hear you, and I'm excited, looking forward to our conversation. I will do my best to be short. You know how long-winded I can get. <laughs> So, well, I will, by me. <laughs> but I, I will do my best. All right. Well, let's get started. I would love for people to get to know you a little better. I have come to know you um, over the last um, year and I'm always, um, you know, um, just um, inspired by your work, um, your wisdom, and um, always learning new things about you. So I would like uh, to have people um, who are listening to the podcast get to know you a little bit. So uh, tell us a little bit about your childhood, like where you grew up and, and some things about your childhood. Okay. Um, good afternoon, everybody. I am Dr. Mary Marshall. I was born in Augusta, Georgia. And I spent really the first 12, 13 years of my life going back and forth between Augusta and New York. I like to tell people that um, I am, I was the child of parents who were in the military, which of course is definitely not true. I do know that my father was um, in the army for a short time, but I use that um, description because my siblings and I spent winters in Augusta with my grandparents. And as soon as school was out, my grandmother or my mother, my grandmother usually would take us to New York to be with my mother. My parents had separated. And we typically stayed until Labor Day. On Labor Day, my mother would bring us back to Augusta. And that was the cycle for the first 12, 13 years of my life. Okay. When my older sister graduated from high school, by that time, my grandmother was really becoming, well, she was older and becoming more ill. So we all came to New York. I went through elementary and junior high school in Georgia, and I finished high school here in New York. And I studied music and dance from about 
five, six years old until I graduated from high school. One might think that I would then study music and or dance in college, but my passion was always to write. I was a very easy child to buy presents for any time of the year. The thing I always wanted most was pencils and paper. Okay. Give me paper and pencils to write and you had a happy kid on your hands. I spent the majority of my childhood and teenage years reading. I could always be found with a book. When I went to the library, both in Georgia and in New York, I generally left with a shopping bag full of books. At that time, you could take out more than two or three. And I was a voracious reader. So that was my early childhood. Okay. Well, well, let's ease on into your university years, like where you went to university, that your studies, um, and your experience, a little bit about that. My intention, <clears throat> excuse me, my intention when I became a senior in high school, I knew that my mother would not be able to pay for college. So my intention was to work full-time and go to Long Island University part-time I had gone to one of their college fairs, and I liked it. It was, it, I would have been commuting, but that, to me, was fine. That's what I needed to do. That's what I wanted to do. However, during that particular point in history, in New York City, if you took the scholarship exam for any college, you typically would have the rest of the day off. Given that my mother and aunt worked at night, I didn't have a lot of time after school to meet up with friends, hang out. So I took every exam that was available so that when the exam was over, I would spend the rest of my time exploring Fifth Avenue. I loved antiques. I spent a lot of time in the village going into antique shops. I had grown up in a home that was full of antiques, so I knew a lot about antiques. And as a result of taking those tests, I won or was accepted at Howard University and several other colleges. I also won a scholarship from a separate organization. Having the money to attend college and being accepted at Howard meant I could actually go to school full time and I could go away. And that is how I ended up at Howard University. I did my undergraduate work there. I got a degree, a bachelor's degree in speech pathology, audiology, and English. I carried a double major because at the time, Howard did not have a department of speech. It had just started, 
but the board of trustees had not approved speech as a major. So I had a double major speech and English with a minor in psych. Once I graduated and left Howard, I worked for a year as a speech therapist and experienced my first overt racist um, encounter. I decided that I had better find another kind of work. I just thought that while I have a very, I'm a very easygoing person, but being raised both in the South and in the North, I knew that there was racism on both ends. And it had been my experience. And I had come to the conclusion that racism in the North was worse insofar as in the South, whites would call your name or say whatever they were going to say. You knew how they felt and they knew your response to the extent that you gave a response. Whereas in the North, if you recognized racism, prejudice, then it was subtle. And in my opinion, that was worse because someone that you might think is or was someone that you could communicate with, perhaps start a relationship with, with regard to friendship or perhaps a study partner in school or go into a restaurant and be seated at an acceptable place in the restaurant, not back by the bathroom. Mm -hmm. So I decided to go back to school, but I didn't want to start over in that I wanted to pursue a master's degree in a field that would allow me to use my undergraduate study. So I ended up studying reading development and got a master's from NYU in reading development. During my second semester, I had a conversation with one of my teachers to say that, you know, I need a job or at least I need one that pays better than the one I had. And she suggested teaching. Teaching was the last thing on my mind. Mm -hmm. I had come back to New York at a time when the public school system was in an uproar over community development and parental involvement. And I just didn't want to be caught up in all of that. But that wasn't what she had in mind. She explained that she thought I would make a great college teacher. Okay. That was not what I had in mind either because all of my college teachers were much older than I. Mm -hmm. And I just couldn't see me teaching someone who was 18 or 19 or 20. However, it was a paying job. And I started out at New York Tech in Brooklyn, teaching college study skills and English, and discovered that I absolutely loved it. 
I didn't have to call home and tell any student's parent that they didn't do their homework. I didn't have to worry about discipline. The thing that I discovered I had to be concerned about was that the students were not only 18 or 20. Many of them were just coming back from Vietnam. Mm -hmm. And so there were students my own age. I was 24 at the time. And there were also students much older than I. And the faculty person who suggested that this would be a great career for me didn't tell me that I would have to send off admirers. <laughs> and, and so the first, I would get students that would come to my office for counseling or to discuss their classwork and I just didn't understand why these particular men were coming because they were my best students and I'd scratch my head wondering what I did wrong or what I where I wasn't clear and finally one of them said you know Miss Marshall I really like I would really like to take you to dinner <laughs> I was so caught off guard like, Mary, how could you miss this sign? I missed it because I wasn't looking for it. I was there to teach college study skills with a blend of English when necessary. So that meant I had to adjust. There were no computers then. There was no smart board. There was chalk and the blackboard. Right. And what that made me do was try to stand sideways to write on the board <laughs> and talk because I realized that these guys, while they were listening and learning, they were also checking me out. And that made me extremely uncomfortable. Nevertheless, I survived. I got my master's, and then I ended up getting a position at, I was offered positions at the City College of New York, at York College, and one other college. And at that time, City College was within walking distance, practically, from where I lived. So I started full-time as a lecturer at City College. And I never, ever thought that I would be a teacher or that I would love it so much. But I did. I still do. I don't anymore because I'm retired. But I really enjoyed my first seven years. And it was seven years at City. Unfortunately, the year that... I might have been promoted to stay longer. New York City went bankrupt. Oh. And of course, I fell into the last hired, first fired. Oh. And um, that was really depressing mm -hmm. because while I knew that the school, the city, if you were a city employee, that's just the way it worked. However, I got a job later working with the adult education department of the city of New York. Eventually, I 
got another position working at an engineering college upstate, upstate New York and moved into administration of um, minority student affairs and the higher education opportunity program. After doing that for a while, I decided that I should go back to school. I always wanted my doctorate. I just didn't know what I wanted it in. Mm -hmm. For a period, I was thinking of becoming a minister. Mm -hmm. So I actually did a few trial sermons, what they call trial sermons, at my home church in Georgia. And at one point, I realized that as much as I love the Lord and am a Christian and thought that that might be my life's work, it really was not for me. Mm-hmm. And if anything, it made me realize that teaching was what I wanted to do and it wasn't from the pulpit. Okay. So when I went back to school, I decided to um, pursue a course in 19th century history and with the focus on Lucy Craft Laney. She was an educator in Augusta who founded Haynes Normal and Industrial Institute. That was a school, a private school initially, but it became public in the sense that it was private and initially founded for girls. But Miss Lucy thought that she needed to open it up to the boys as well. She didn't like the idea that they were peeping in, wanting to be a part of it. So it became co-ed. But it it meant a lot to me because every person in my home in Georgia, male and female, had attended Haynes Institute. The earliest um, person would have been my grandmother and my grand actually I think even my great grandmother took some courses there because Haynes also had eventually had a pre-college program. Mm -hmm. Miss Laney also established a nursing school. Um, There were classes at night. So I grew up thinking that any moment Miss Miss Laney would walk through the door. Of course, I knew that wasn't going to happen because I knew she was dead. However, the way people talked about her in the city, but especially in my home, if she had walked through the door, it would have shocked me. But I fell in love with the information I knew about this woman I was also a member of Springfield Baptist Church, which is considered to be the oldest black Baptist church in the country, although there is controversy. Some people think it's a church in Savannah. Mm -hmm. But as a kid, I'm not involved with controversy. I'm just going to Sunday school, spending all day in church, because that's what you did at that point in time. You went to Sunday school, church, you went to Baptist training, youth service afterwards. I was in church from 8, 9 in the morning to 5, 6 at night. 
I'm very active in my church. So I proposed as a dissertation topic to write about the the intellectual community in Augusta, starting with Springfield Baptist Church, because out of Springfield Baptist Church, Morehouse College was founded there. The Georgia Equal Rights Association was founded there. And many well-known people, including um, Bishop Henry Turner and others had spoken there. So there was this history in my background that I just took for granted. My passion was writing, and it never occurred to me prior to pursuing a doctorate to look at history. Mm-hmm. But by that time, I was interested in women's history, mm-hmm. and particularly in Lucy Craft Laney. So my doctorate is partially on the intellectual community in Augusta, and on Lucy Craft Laney. Okay. So how did you, I, I think maybe I can kind of understand because you're talking about your doctorate and who you chose and why you chose Lucy Craft Laney. And um, you kind of referenced that you started discovering some family connections to this research that you were doing. And as I have come to learn about you, um, you do a lot of genealogy work, um, and you are actually um, curating a collection that will be held at uh, Emory University. So um, tell me a, a little bit about um, how you got into that um, aspect of the work that you do and, and the passion that you have for it. I've actually always been into genealogy. I didn't know when I was a kid, that's what it was called. But I grew up in a home where photographs from the 1850s, 1870s hung on the the walls. There were tent types, there were amber types, there were old newspapers, there were letters from as early as 1895 that were written between my my grandmother or my great-grandmother, my great-grandmother and her sisters or other people they knew. And my grandmother and her siblings loved to talk about how they were raised. I was raised in a home, a two-story home, Georgian style, built by my great-grandfather and the other men who were members of the Augusta Bricklayers and Masons Union Number One. They were, my great-grandfather was the treasurer in 1900, and he was the treasurer from about 1900 to 1916. And I know, I didn't have to look any of this up. They were just, amazing keepers of documents and information. So I had pictures, I had receipts that he wrote. The union also served as a kind of 
um, benevolent society. Mm -hmm. And at times they would give money to people who were ill in the community. My great-grandparents were also very active. My great-grandmother was a milliner and a seamstress. But when her husband suddenly died in 1916 of a massive stroke, she was ready to give birth and did, in fact, give birth to their youngest child six weeks later. So I actually just grew up with all this information that I couldn't touch because I was a kid and I was to listen. I could be seen but not heard. So I listened to the stories that my grandmother and her siblings told about their life and about the lives of the community, the lives of people they met in their travels. I have a letter that my, great, that my grandmother wrote in 1912. At the time, she was in Portsmouth, Massachusetts, and I, I couldn't fathom how her mother would allow her to go that far by herself to work as a maid. I also didn't understand why she needed to go and work, given this huge house that I grew up in, and the fact that in 1916, my great-grandmother, although she lost her husband, she also inherited the home she and her and her well, she and her children mm-hmm. inherited this home and three others that she and her husband had purchased and were using as income to support the family. Mm -hmm. So suddenly my grandmother had to drop out of school and the oldest, um, her oldest sibling finished. But the bottom line is I grew up with all of this information. And in 1985, when one of my one of the two grand aunts living past. The question was what to do with a lot of the documents and pictures. And I decided that I would bring as much as I could back to New York. I, I then took samples of some of what I had to the Schomburg in order to find out what do I need to do to preserve these documents and these pictures, many of which were over 100 years old. I met um, Dr. Deborah Willis and others there who gave me some information about preservation. And starting in 1985, I just continued to work to support myself, go to school, but at the same time, learn as much as I could about preserving these documents. Fast forward to, oh, about 2000, I guess about 2010, 11, somewhere around that time, I realized, well, I always knew that I needed to put the documents in an archive because I did not have the proper environment or the space to keep everything. And I also realized that the documents I had, they weren't just about my family or my ancestors. 
they included people that my ancestors met along the way. And as a result of that, I started to talk to other historians that I knew in search of a home for this collection. I personally wanted the collection to be called the Willie and Mary Williams collection because they were the ones that started it. However, um, at Emory, which is where it is now, the collection had to be in the name of the person who was placing it there. I see. And so that's how um, it's, that's why it's in my name, although it's not totally about me. And there are three other women who are part of the collection, women that I met along the way. And one woman, um, Margaret Harris, her, part of her collection is there. Margaret Harris was one of the first female, black female composers and was the composer for the musical Hair. She died of a massive heart attack at 50 and her things, I suppose, whomever handled her funeral kept some, but a lot was tossed in the garbage. And the people who cleaned out the apartment had just happened to be people that I knew. They knew I was a historian and so they brought the papers to me. When I was putting our family history at any place, you know, her information is included with that in addition to two others. I went to several other universities and also considered some places in Augusta, but Emory became my final choice in part because Emory is in Atlanta. Lucy Craft Laney's portrait hangs in the state capitol at Atlanta, in Atlanta. And I thought, what better place for people to both see my collection, see what I have about Lucy Craft Laney, and go visit the state capitol and see this portrait of the first black woman that um, whose portrait hangs there. And um, in the course of all of this, I needed to learn how to preserve the information. That's right. Um, and that, what, that leads me to um, what will be one of our final questions, uh, one of the final questions that I <laughs> have for you for this, this interview. And I hope this is going to be the first of many because you are a wealth of knowledge. <laughs> and... Um, you, you know, talking about um, the collection and why you decided to do it and where it is. In the process of all of that, you had to learn some things about preserving this history. And I would love for you to, I think you were getting ready to get into that, but, you know, share with us some of the things that you would learn that would be beneficial to others who may be inspired to do this or who are already doing it? Yes. Well, as I said, the first thing I did was to go to the Schomburg and 
one of their recommendations was to make copies of all of the letters and photographs. Um, that's a huge job, not just the actual making of the copies, but it's, it's, it's very expensive. Mm -hmm. But they gave me the name of several photographic shops or companies that would do that. And I started out doing exactly that, making copies of the larger pictures, which are 16 by roughly 16 by 20. Mm -hmm. Thankfully, these the, the photographic studio or company that I went to explained to me that the best thing for me was not to make copies of everything, rather to have, um, gosh, I can't think of the name, uh, so, uh, uh, negatives made. There's a, a formal name that won't come to me at the moment, but they photographed everything. And rather than actually printing a copy of each approved sheet, rather than printing a copy of every picture, every letter, they simply photographed it, made negatives so that I have negatives of everything, but I also had proof sheets. Okay. And what that allows you to do is to choose which pictures you might want to make a copy of. Okay. It also keep, helps you not to keep handling the originals. Uh -huh. Once I did that, the next step was to remember to try as much as possible to use gloves, white gloves, when handling the documents so that you don't get fingerprints all over them, uh -huh. and to categorize the documents that you have in that way you know what you have and if it ends up that you place your photographs documents at an archive you know what you're placing you don't necessarily have to do that you can depending on the size of your collection you might be able to keep it at home or I mean, there's so many factors mm -hmm. as to where you might keep it or place it, but making copies and um, having a proof sheet and negatives is really important. Mm -hmm. It's also important to talk to your elders. And when I say elders, not just the people who are older than you necessarily, but talk to your elders, talk to your parents, talk to family members because it's from them that you will learn the history of your family. Mm -hmm. Talk to friends of the family because sometimes friends know a lot more about your family than even your family. Right. Mm -hmm. um, okay. Some of the other things that I did was simply, you know, start reading about what is genealogy. Because when I started this, there was no ancestry. Mm -hmm. And even though the Mormons have this humongous um, archive from which all of the others have evolved, I didn't always have access to that either. I went to the courthouse mm -hmm. and different places to have access to the census. 
I basically had all the information I needed to talk about these pictures, but having the census reports helped me to place the pictures within a certain time frame and then to research what was happening in a particular city or a part of the city Mm -hmm. that my family or whomever I was um, looking at, you know, whatever the photo was, whether it was a building or a person or whether it was a sales receipt. I I even have, um, there's one ticket from uh, for a baseball game that I believe it's 1937. And I actually didn't know there were black baseball teams in Augusta. Yes. And I didn't know that a large number of not just the Negro leagues, but minor leagues actually practiced and played games in Augusta. Uh, I wasn't into baseball, so. <laughs> but right. as a result of my collection, I've learned a lot about the place that I grew up. That is awesome. And I think that we could all take a lesson from you. And uh, I'm going to um, start to wrap our interview up, but I have so enjoyed it today. And I would like to give you an opportunity to tell people where they may find um, some of your work um, and and your writing. Okay. Um, One of the places that if you'd like, for those who'd like to see some of the photographs that I sort of received and took in 1985, I have a video on YouTube. It's called Mary Marshall's Mission. It's not a video that I made, but I did some volunteer work with a film company and they did this five minute film on me and some of my collection. So that's one place they can go. It's again, it's called Mary Marshall's Mission. Okay. I also have um, some articles that I've done on medium.com and that is under Dr. Mary Marshall. Okay. And these articles talk about some of the pictures or the documents, or they may talk about life during a particular period in time. I mostly focus on Augusta, but at the same time, it focuses on my grandmother and other grand aunt's travels between 19, about 1900 and as late as maybe even, I'd say about 1970. My grandmother died in 1972. However, the documents go all the way to the 2000s because I've added documents that my letters between my mother and my grandmother Mm -hmm. um and of course i you can also find some of my work or thoughts on twitter and my twitter handle is dr m m 
Marshall MM. Okay. Well, again, thank you so very much. And folks, um, I know um, you just got a little tidbit of the wealth of knowledge um, uh, that Dr. Marshall has to bring. And I hope that you will look her up on some of these um, platforms like Medium and check out the video on YouTube and follow her on Twitter. And um, she's always sharing uh, great insights and information and educating us. And I, I, again, just want to thank you, Dr. Marshall, for joining me today to help educate and inspire us with your work in genealogy, um, teaching history, and the importance of preserving it for future generations. And um, I want to wish you a great afternoon. Thank you. This has been exciting. And I feel as though I sort of tripped along the line, along the path and sharing. But I hope that those who listen to the interview will be encouraged and inspired to talk to your elders, talk to your family members, and begin to make notes and recordings of what you have, even from your cell phone. You can take that and use as um, a way of starting your own history of your life and your families. Absolutely. Well, that's great advice, uh, advice, folks, and I do hope that you take it. And thank you, Dr. Marshall, for um, sharing and educating us today. And I look forward to um, having you back again uh, where you can share some more of the knowledge uh, with us. So uh, you guys have a great afternoon. We look forward to uh, having you join us for our next interview with Dr. Mary Marshall. Have a great evening. Bye-bye. Bye.